Dear Father, we are thankful for your word, for your guidance in your word, for your willingness to reveal things to us. Father, we couldn't know otherwise. I thank you for the, the opportunity to understand it by your spirit. I thank you for men and women whose hearts want to know it. And I thank you, Father, for uh, this facility and the ways you've protected us in this room for so long that we could teach it on a consistent basis. Thank you for all of these blessings. Show us truth today, Father, as you do all the time. Every time we open your word, we expect that. But, uh, Father, I also ask that you would uh, open our ears and our eyes to think about it differently than we do so that we're thinking about our own lives and not just about the academics of this exercise, but to know how to use it, how to follow you better with it. Strengthen my ability to teach it, Father, even as I've prepared my notes, Father. It may not be what you wanted, so whatever you want me to say, Father, just speak through me. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your chart, again, I'm going to keep referring to it because it helps me if it doesn't help you. But in your chart, you notice we're still in the block that looks at the consequences or the ramifications of salvation by faith. We have three parts to this block. Last week, we looked at the first of those parts out of chapter 6. That was the implications of your salvation for your spirit. And we learned that your spirit has been made new in Christ, that you now share his perfect spirit, and you have the Holy Spirit dwelling with you. So as we live today, as a Christian alive today in Christ, we are spiritually new, and we are forever changed. And there are a lot of profound consequences of having been born again in this fashion. And Paul is moving to explain those consequences in this chapter and in future chapters, in fact. Today he's going to cover two of the major consequences from having been made new again, made new alive in Christ. The first of these consequences looks at your relationship to the law that God gave to Israel. How does salvation by faith and the new spirit that comes change your relationship to the law God gave Israel? Secondly, he looks at the consequences for our relationship with our own body, with the flesh of our existence. And as it's going to turn out, you're going to find that these two ideas, that is the law and the flesh, are closely related, which is why they're both together in this chapter. Let's start with the first topic, which is law. We'll start in verses 1 through 6, Romans 7, 1. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. And if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him, who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions that were aroused by the law were at at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we may serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. That's our first stopping point. And the opening of the chapter begins with a conjunction, or, which tells us immediately that we're dropping into the middle of a thought that began somewhere near the end of chapter 6. And if we just back up a couple verses, you'll see that. The end of chapter 6, Paul was saying this, 6.22, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in that last section of chapter 6, what was Paul doing? Well, he was contrasting 
two forms of bondage. First, there was your prior bondage to sin. That is, we were born in the nature of Adam, and that nature was fallen, and it was sinful, and it was incapable of acting contrary to its nature. It did what it was programmed to do. It sinned. All right. So in that sense, Paul says you were in bondage to sin prior to coming to faith. You can compare it to someone who's born with a physical birth defect, for example, something like blindness. You might say that such a person is in bondage to their blindness, meaning they can't escape from it. Similarly, you and I are born with a spiritual birth defect, and that's a fallen spirit. And so we are in bondage to its limitations, to its sin, because you can't escape it either, not in your own power. But, Paul says, when you were born again by the Spirit of God, your old enslaved spirit was taken away, and as a result you were given a new spirit that is enslaved to God, Paul says. That is, he gave us a new spirit and placed in us his own spirit. That new spirit we received at the point of our new birth is formed out of the likeness of Christ. We descend from him spiritually now. It shares his perfect nature. And the Holy Spirit living in us assures us that what God has begun in each of us, he will complete one day, bringing us into a new body. So now Paul says the result of all that is being enslaved to God. And what he means is very much in the same sense, we are enslaved in the same sense as we were previously enslaved. Today, by faith, you have a perfect, sinless spirit, one that, like Christ, cannot sin. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit living in you will never leave you nor forsake you. And you can't escape those things any more than you could have escaped your sin nature before you came to faith. And in that sense, you're in bondage. Before you came to faith, you didn't choose to be a sinner. It's all you knew how to do. And when you came to faith, you didn't choose to receive the Holy Spirit or Christ's Spirit for that matter. It was given to you by God, resulting in your sanctification and eternal life, Paul says. We moved from one state of bondage, so to speak, to another state of bondage by our faith in Christ. To explain this change in our relationship to the law, Paul now begins with another analogy in chapter 7. So what does it mean with our relationship to the law that I'm now enslaved to God when previously I was enslaved to my own sin? And he uses an analogy by in chapter 7 to make this application or to make this explanation sensible. And he starts by saying, or do you not know, and we could say it this way, as you already know, that's what he's saying, as you already know, and then he goes on to say, look, I'm specifically talking to those who know the law, which tells us that this consequence, that is, of our relationship to the law of Israel, the consequence of coming to faith, changing that relationship, that's something unique to the Jew. It's unique to the Jew because only Jews were under the Mosaic law. Only Jews were given that law. Paul says that law has jurisdiction over a Jewish person for as long as that Jewish person lives. And this concept would have been incredibly simple to understand if you were Jewish. That's why Paul calls them out in this part of the letter. The law God gave to Israel came as part of a covenant. We call it the Mosaic Covenant. Obviously, only those who are party to a covenant are bound to what's in that covenant. And the law is in the covenant God gave to Israel through Moses. You could compare it to the way a man or a woman would enlist in the military. A recruit, when they enlist, he or she enters into a contract with the government. And that recruit, after they enter in with that contract, that recruit then becomes subject to military laws and military regulations. Before he entered into that contract, those laws and regulations did not apply to him or her. After they enter into the contract, they're bound to those laws. 
Only someone who is enlisted is required to follow those laws. And when that enlistment contract expires, that person is freed from those laws. Anyone who's ever been in the military knows exactly what I'm talking about because you remember that day. (laughs) Similarly, when Israel entered into the Old Covenant at Mount Sinai, they obligated themselves and their future generations to follow the law given through that covenant. But in the case of a covenant, the terms are binding until death. Covenants do not expire. Covenants cannot be canceled. You can't quit a covenant because covenants are, by definition, biblical covenants are, by definition, for life. So in order for a covenant to end, a death is required. And Paul builds on this principle to explain our relationship change to the law when we became believing. He uses the example, in this case, of the covenant of marriage. So in verse 2, Paul says that if while a woman's husband is living, she's joined to another man, so in other words, she remarries, then she shall be called an adulteress, because marriage, since it is a covenant, like all covenants, can only be broken by death. Nothing else ends a covenant. Not even the breaking of the covenant by someone else breaks the covenant. It just brings the penalty of breaking the covenant on that individual. So the penalties of breaking the covenant become the necessary response. It doesn't end the covenant. And the penalty for breaking a covenant is death. So literally, a death one way or the other is the only way you end a covenant. Which is why my wife and I say, you're not getting out of this unless one of us kills each other. (laughs) If a spouse is still living, we may not marry another, for that is adultery. That's why Jesus said this in speaking of marriage and divorce in Luke 16, 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. He started with the word everyone. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. So Paul has to build on this principle. Keep in mind that if the principle that Paul is espousing has any exceptions, then the application he's making to our relationship to Christ would seem to have suggestion of exceptions as well. So this principle, he would not use this analogy if the analogy had exceptions because the point he's trying to make by it is there are no exceptions. Paul goes on to say that if the husband dies, the woman is free to remarry. His death has ended their covenant, and that makes possible a new covenant without worry of adultery. That's why in marriage ceremonies today, we still include, in many cases anyway, that declaration that what God has joined, no one may separate. Society may prescribe legal ways to dissolve a marriage, but God doesn't submit to the decisions of our local county judge. That marriage didn't end until death. Working from that principle, Paul now makes his application to the Jewish relationship to the law through that covenant given by Moses. He says, the Jewish people are bound to God in the terms of that Mosaic covenant, which means keeping the law and all its requirements, and they are bound to doing it until death. For as long as that covenant is in place, it acts to condemn anyone who cannot keep it perfectly. It was a ministry of death, Paul calls in Second Corinthians. To free someone from the condemnation of God's law, God had to act in our place to produce a death, thereby putting an end to the covenant for any who are in Christ Jesus. So Jesus died, and when he died, we were seen to die with him spiritually. By grace, through our faith in Christ, God put us to death spiritually in Christ, which is what Paul explained in the last chapter. In place of that death we have with him, a new spirit comes to us. At that moment, you're a different person. You've literally died, and something new has come. 
And because your old self has died, you are no longer a part of the Mosaic Covenant. You've died. And as you died with Christ, you were released from any covenants that you had prior to that death, at least in terms of spiritual covenants. It put an end to your relationship to the law. It'd be like the military recruit ending his enlistment. The military laws and the regulations no longer apply. Now remember, Paul prefaced this whole analogy, this explanation, by saying he's speaking to those who know the law. That's the Jew within the church. And for a Jew who had come to faith in Christ, they would naturally have started to wonder if they could dispense with the law or why they could dispense with the law. If they'd been told by Paul or others that they don't have to keep the law anymore now that they've come to Christ... A Jew would have naturally asked, how can that be? How can I no longer do the law? Aren't I still Jew? Isn't this still a covenant God made with Jewish people? What changed that relationship? Paul says it's because you've died. And in dying, you've literally escaped the covenant that was formed by your forefathers. It's been ended for your sake through the death of Christ. Christ completed all its terms while he was alive, and then he took on the death that it required for failure to keep the law. He covered both ends. And he is put you to death with himself. Now, what about the Gentiles in the church? Which, for the most part, includes everyone in this room, right? Well, you're equally free from the law because you were never under it in the first place. No Gentile was party to the Mosaic Covenant. But we are held to God's standard for holiness. In other words, you don't have to be part of the Mosaic Covenant to still be accountable to God for your sin. Remember what we learned in Romans 2. Romans 2.11, for there's no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law, that's us, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, those are the Jews, well, they'll be judged by the law. Well, when they're judged by the law, they're found guilty. And when we stand before God without the law, we'll still have sin that demands his justice. So having the law didn't protect them in any way from the judgment of sin. And us not having the law doesn't excuse us. The law wasn't given for that purpose. Having the law and being bound to the Mosaic Covenant never offered anyone any advantage in terms of righteousness. It only served to convict people for their unrighteousness. It lacked the power to compel us into righteous life. So on the day of eternal judgment, Jews and Gentiles alike will be convicted for their sin, and that's regardless of how much of God's law they ever knew. Ignorance is no excuse before God for sin. But for the Jew... The issue of their relationship to the Mosaic Law was important because the Mosaic Law defined literally every aspect of Jewish life. So Paul is explaining at the outset of this chapter that your life in Christ, having died with Him and having come to life in a new way through His Spirit, that now opens the door for a Jew to live an entirely new life of freedom from the Mosaic Law. And that's a huge deal for any Jew. It's also a big deal to those Gentiles who were entering the church at that time because there were those in the church who were teaching them that they had to become Jewish, convert as it were, get circumcised and submit to the law before they could then be Christian. That you had to go through Judaism to get to Christianity. That was the teaching of the Judaizers. So what Paul's teaching here, of course, also takes that burden off the Gentile. So to the Gentile, this mattered only in the sense that it prevents us from getting pulled back into a trap that we had no part of to begin with. And by the way, I'm sure you know this, it's still going on today. Whether it's going on from a a, a sort of hyper-messianic perspective where they want us to really pretend we're Jewish, romanticizing Judaism, or if it's merely legalism, trumped up as good old-fashioned Southern religion, 
where we want to make sure you don't do any of those nasty things that we don't want Christians to do. And so we create our own law, sort of our own version of the law. Or those who say you still enter the Ten Commandments, or those who still want you to repeat some aspect of the law because they deem it necessary. All of this is ignoring the theology of Romans 7. When you died with Christ, you died to a law that's no longer of any use to anyone in that regard. Once you've come to Christ, you've met its terms through Him. So Paul is saying that the law is no longer in effect because our death in Christ frees us from the covenant that established the law. Notice in verse 4, Paul says, We were made to die to the law through Christ. That is, our separation from the covenant of law is not optional. We were made to die to this covenant. It's not something you had to agree to be separated from. The covenant has ended because you've been made to die to it. Like a woman who's been widowed by her husband's death, her marriage ended the moment her husband died because the covenant ended at that moment. We could say she had been made to be single again. Now that woman could continue living as if she were married. She could keep wearing a ring. She could keep calling herself Mrs. So-and-so. She could refuse to look for a new husband. But all of that's just pretending. Or it's, you know, fond memories. But it doesn't change the reality. She's not married. So likewise, some Jews in the church in Paul's day, they continued to live under the law, at least parts of it, voluntarily. But they were doing so for their own sake. They weren't doing it because God wanted them to do it. And they weren't doing it necessarily to please God. God had not placed them under that obligation. In fact, through Christ's death, God had freed them from that obligation. That's why Paul keeps telling the church elsewhere in his letters not to submit themselves again to this yoke of slavery that they've been freed from. He says in Colossians 2.20, he says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why... As if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? You notice what he's saying? He started that in the same way that we've been talking here in chapter 7. He says, you've died with Christ. There's that reference again to our putting an end to the covenant. He says, since you've died with Christ, freeing you from the covenant of law, he says, why would you resubmit yourselves to taking up dietary and cleanliness rules of the law? Rules, he said, which are merely commandments of men. They're not from God. God's told you you're freed from those things. So in verse 6, Paul says, we are released from the law so that we might serve God in a new way by the Spirit. Now that statement summarizes the first consequence of salvation for our flesh in this chapter. I said there's two, right? Our relationship to the law and our relationship to our own body. And this one summarizes the first one. We are now serving God in a new way. Before faith in Christ, if you were Jew, for example, you were instructed to serve God by accomplishing the requirements of the covenant, principally the law itself. That's how you served God. Doing works of law was the spiritual service required by anyone who was bound by that covenant. But now you've been freed from that law, so now you're obligated to serve God in a different way by following the leading of the Spirit who lives in you. That old law written on stone is no longer your guide. In its place, you have a law written on your heart, so to speak, the Bible says. You have the mind of Christ. You have the Spirit of God. You have that sinless Spirit now from Christ. And as I said last week, if the Spirit living in you is already sinless then it already knows the right thing to do under every single circumstance you ever encounter, which is a far greater set of knowledge than the law written on stone had. Where would you need to go outside the Spirit of God and the Word of God to know what to do in any given situation? If He's got the mind of Christ living in you, you already know it all, at least in the sense of you know what's right in a given situation. The question is, are you listening? 
So Paul says, you were freed from that law written on stone, which he says elsewhere in Scripture is a custodian, a sort of temporary caretaker for you, watching over you until you had the fullness of Christ in you to take you on from there. Now the fullness has come. Don't revert back to the old. You either serve God through one system or you serve him through the other. Either you are under the law and you follow all its rules or you're freed from the law and you follow the Holy Spirit. One came through the old covenant, one comes through the new covenant. And that's why Paul says in verse 4, you were freed from one to join the other. Now think about what he's saying. In light of the analogy of marriage, think about what he's saying. He's saying to mix the two is adultery. To try to live under both covenants in some sense. To be saved by grace and call yourself a Christian, and yet also to think you have to submit to some part of the law, that's like having two husbands. Being in two covenants is like having two husbands in the way he uses the analogy. And therefore, based on what he says here, based on what he says in Galatians, I I would say without a doubt Christians have no business mixing the observance of the old covenant law with a following of Christ in the new covenant. Now, you can observe an occasional ritual as a memorial, as a teaching opportunity, something like conducting a Seder meal at a Passover once in a while. That's fine. But you cannot submit yourself to a lifestyle of law of keeping it routinely as a matter of serving God, because to do so is to pretend you're still bound by a covenant that if you were Gentile, you were never bound by. And if you're Jew, you've been freed from. So the first consequence for us in the flesh, from our new relationship, our new birth in Christ, is in the way we serve God. We move out of a service based on law, if we ever had it, to a service that's based on a spiritual law written on our heart. And that new spiritual life in serving God is boundless in its opportunities. Think about that comparison for a moment. Under the law in Israel's life, only certain people could be priests. Only certain men of a certain tribe could be priests. And only certain men of that tribe could go into the tabernacle and serve him. And there were other limitations and restrictions throughout Jewish society for who could do what in service to God. But now the Bible says all who are believers are priests. We're part of a royal priesthood. That is, any of us are qualified to represent God before men and women, before the world. We are no longer called to serve him in just certain rituals that have to be repeated weekly in certain particular ways, in a certain particular building, at a certain point in the world. No, now we serve him according to what we find in the truth of his word by the leading of his spirit. Jesus said it this way, John 4.23 An hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So that's now the service of life of someone who walks according to faith in Christ. They live and they serve God unrestricted by rituals or law that no longer apply. But by a broad appreciation that we follow Christ through the word and through the spirit. That's the first consequence, and I hope it's a freeing one. For some who already think and work this way, it's simply a confirmation of what you knew. For others, it may be a freeing opportunity to move outside of a very unnecessarily restrictive life of service or of obligation into what is truly God's intention for an individual Christian, which is to follow him wherever and however, without those restrictions getting in the way. But now we move to the second consequence for the body. Before he does that, Paul stops to address an obvious question. What he's going to do in the, in the transition, he's going to address an obvious question that emerges from the first part of this teaching. And in the way he addresses it, he'll move us directly into the second consequence. Back in verse 5, Paul said that while we were in the flesh, which is a way of saying while you were still unbelieving, 
The sinful passions in our flesh led us into sin. Those passions were already at work in the members of our body, meaning they were a part of how we lived. They were a part of who we were. Our body's lusts just drove us from one sin to the next. That was the life of the unbeliever. When the Lord gave the law to men in Israel, that is, when he came to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, and he said, here are the things I want you to do, and here are the things you can't do, Paul said all it served to do was focus those passions. Remember, the sinful nature of humanity is always set against God. We learned that in an earlier chapter, in chapter 3. If God says, go left, our body wants to go right. If God says, okay, go right instead, we change our mind too, and we want to go left. That's the nature of our sin. So as God defined for humanity exactly what was holy to Him, it gave opportunity for the sin nature in our flesh to focus our opposition against Him in those areas. And so that starts to raise questions for the Jew as they begin to understand this dynamic. They'll say things like, well, is the law a cause for sin? Is it the source of our sin? Because it prompts that desire in the nature of man to oppose God? Paul answers that in verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So as you'd expect, Paul is going to refute the thought that the law is the cause of sin. He says it's actually the opposite. The law is the definition of holiness. It's not a recipe for sin. Paul says he came to know what sin was in him because the law finally gave it a name. For example, that urge to covet, it was always in his nature because it's in everybody's nature. But only after the Lord defined coveting in the law, only then did men understand that sin within them. Notice Paul uses here one of the Ten Commandments. That's kind of an interesting example. Think about that for a minute. In the same context, Paul refers to coveting as part of the law, which tells us that Paul looks at the Ten Commandments as part of that law we have died to. This would argue against anybody trying to carve out an exception somehow and say that Ten Commandments are different than the rest of the law. No, they're not. They're all the law, right? Like James says, you break one, you've broken them all. The way the Bible views the law is in one unseparable group of things, not uh, categories of things. So we are not bound to the law of Moses, therefore we're not bound to the Ten Commandments. Those things are part of the old law. We have a better law in our heart that is even greater in its scope. Now, Paul says, having a definition of what was sin, that is, once the law came and gave men insight concerning what is sin as far as God is concerned, Then Paul says the fallen nature of humanity now had a target. And with that target, they now took opportunity to violate every one of those rules as often as they possibly could make it happen. That is the pervasive nature of sin working in our flesh. Our sin is a force of nature, literally speaking. It has its own drive, its own goals, its own master. And that force used to define the nature of us in our spirit... Now, our spirit is made new, and that's been taken away. Our spirit is no longer driven by a sin nature, but it still lives in us in the members of our physical body. It's not a mental process, but it influences our thinking. 
It's not a physical force, but it influences our feelings and actions. It is a spiritual force that lives in the members of our body, independent of our spirit. You can see that this moment I'm talking about, this force I'm talking about. You can see the moment that this force came into existence in chapter 3 of Genesis. In Genesis 3, 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So when Adam and woman sinned, they put into effect the word of God that promised spiritual death in the day you eat of it. They both immediately changed in their spirit, becoming fallen creatures in their spirit, and that change produced a new evil spiritual force in their bodies as a part of who they were. That spiritual force recognizes God as an enemy and knows that it is under the penalty of death, that it is under judgment, that God has a judgment awaiting it. And so the effect of this spiritual force or this spiritual awareness comes out in the physical. You see it in the physical reactions of these two people. It immediately begins to influence the thinking and the actions of man and woman. First, both their eyes are said to be opened. That's a way of describing the arrival of evil into their spirit. They're no longer innocent. They're no longer unfamiliar with evil. Now they know it intimately, and in that sense, their eyes were opened. And then they sensed that they were naked. Now they've been naked since they were made, and they hadn't thought anything about it. They've always been without clothing. It was never a concern for them until this moment. Now they're both experiencing a subconscious change. That fallen spirit knows that it's an enemy of God. It knows it's under judgment. That spiritual vulnerability to God manifests itself as a physical vulnerability, as shame, as causing them to seek need for covering. Now this is not a matter of culture. This happened instantaneously. It is instinctive. Of course, the need for physical cover is itself a reflection of their need for spiritual cover, the covering of Christ's blood. And so you see the physical being a manifestation of what's going on spiritually inside them. Later, when God entered the garden, you remember what they did? They hid from him because they know he's now their adversary. Again, who told them that? No one had to tell them that. That's why God said, who told you you were naked? That's God's way of saying, this came from a spiritual change inside you. Nobody had to tell you this. Did you notice that you're different? Can you see that you now feel and think differently? That's the effect of sin taking root inside the human person. And the effect of that on the person is to create a new force working within them that they have no control over per se. It's not something they consciously control. From that point forward, humanity shared this sense of God as our enemy and we collectively are vulnerable to his judgment. We see men in the Bible, falling in fear every time they're in the presence of God or His holiness or His angels. That, again, is an example of our innate instinctive reaction, knowing we are vulnerable to a holy God because of our sin. Men are always set against the things of God, and yet even as we remain ignorant of God, my flesh knows to oppose God when it's informed. So my ignorance of God is the only thing holding back my flesh's desire to oppose Him. So that's what Paul means in verse 8 when he says, apart from the law, sin was dead. Now, he doesn't mean sin was gone. He means it was dormant. It was just not aware yet of what to oppose. 
It wasn't aroused, but the day that God said, do not do X or do not do Y, then that arouses, that awakens the sin nature within me to know now what to oppose. That is, you don't want me to covet? I'm going to go coveting. Because you told me not to. It's a force, like two sides of a magnet that aren't meant to go with each other. You try to push them together and they push each other away. You can't see it. You can't. Some people can't even really explain it. We just know it's a force of nature. That's how the sin nature of humanity works. Conversely, in verse 9, Paul says that he was alive apart from the law. What he means, of course, is he was ignorant. He was ignorant of his own sin. Alive here then means being self-righteous. Thinking yourself approved before God because you're too foolish and ignorant to know how much sin you really have. But then as the law is made known to his heart, Paul says two things happened to him. First, he says, sin became alive in me. It was awakened to the possibilities of opposing God like a sleeping lion and aroused by an intruder. Look at all this law I get to go oppose now. Once your flesh understands what God wants or doesn't want, you suddenly have a plan of action against him. And secondly, Paul's conscience came to understand how vulnerable he was before God, and that's why he says he died. Like Adam and woman in the garden, Paul suddenly felt the condemnation that's due for coveting. Notice, he didn't say he stopped coveting. He said he recognized he was in trouble for all of his coveting. That's the experience of humanity. That feeling in our spirit instinctively that we know we're doing the wrong thing and we're going to be held accountable at some point because of God's holiness, but that doesn't give us the power in and of itself to stop. So the law was a commandment, or commandments, explaining the way to holiness, but its effect in the fallen person's nature was simply to bring you to death, not to bring you to holiness. It excites that part of us which brings about our own condemnation. That fallen part of our nature, it becomes like a road map for how to sin more. By the way, if you want good evidence of this, if you just want to see a little experiment of it, try working with two and three-year-olds. You know, I'm serious. This is when their intellect and their will is too underdeveloped to mitigate against their sin nature. Their sin nature is a very powerful force in their life because at that young age, they don't have the mental development yet to know for their own benefit when to pull back, when to self-regulate. They're just an unregulated ball of sin. So you just let them go and watch it, watch it at work. You can't have a cookie. Oh, I want a cookie now. I didn't know there were cookies. There's cookies. I want a cookie. You can have every toy in this room except that toy. That's for your brother. Oh, I'm going to get that toy now, right? Watch it happen. It's like a living experiment in exactly what Genesis 3 is describing. Paul says in verse 11, now he's speaking of your flesh here again because your spirit's perfect. He says, sin took opportunity through the knowing of the covenant to bring us all the more of the same. It deceived us in that it causes our heart to move in a direction that is inherently hurtful to our own best interests. Like the original sin in the garden, our sinful nature tells us that what is evil is good and what is good is evil. The effect of that deception is to bring us into death, both physical and spiritual for those who don't know Christ. So Paul summarizes his explanation of the law in verse 12. He says, the law is holy. Its instructions to us are good, holy, righteous, etc. The problem isn't the law. The problem is our sinful flesh in how it responds to the law. Now that's the background for the next consequence. So the first consequence, as I said, was in coming to Christ, you die to the law. The law is no longer your guide in life for serving God. And if you're Gentile, it never was, so don't back up into it now. <laughs> Meanwhile, if you think that that suggests that the law is somehow 
unhealthy for us or bad for us because it prompts sin responses out of humanity. You need to understand it's not the law that's responsible for that. It's the nature of humanity to oppose God. That's the problem. The law just gives people a roadmap for how to do that opposition. Now, with that background, he goes to the second major consequence for salvation for the body, for the physical body, and that starts in verse 13. He says, Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin, by effecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. I stop there because that's obviously a complex sentence that Paul just wrote, and we'll take a minute or two to unwind it. Paul is moving his line of reasoning just one step further. So he's asked, is the law sin? We said, no, it's not sin, it's holy. It's us that sin. Then he asks the next question. He asks, how can we say that the law is good, being good, how do we say it's still to blame for causing our death? If you're saying the law is good, how can you say it's still the cause of our death then? Paul says the cause of our death is not the law. May it never be, he says. Rather, the cause of our death is sin itself. So here's what Paul's saying. Paul says, we die because of sin, not because a law exists that we're violating. Paul says the law simply is there to give us opportunity to know how truly sinful we are. In other words, if God had never given anybody his law, you'd still be just as sinful as you are now, and you'd still be just as condemned for it when you die. All that would be missing is you wouldn't know how to measure your sinfulness. You'd go to the grave unaware of just how sinful you are. So God gave the law so that he says it could affect me in such a way that I could see sin, how utterly sinful I am. Giving us the law just showed us that. Now, we could say that, this is how I'd use an analogy to explain that. You could say the law is like a light, you know, like the light to your path. But if that's true, we've got to compare it to the light of an open flame, and in which case your sin nature is like a pool of gasoline in your heart. So as that light of the law comes to us, it just ignites passions to oppose God and to sin all the more. Do you blame the flame? Now, the flame was light. The problem is it mixed with something that was toxic, something that was inflammatory. You don't blame the law, you blame the response of your heart. Now, all of this talk of law and its strange power to excite our flesh into rebellion, that introduces a new and important theological principle, which is the second issue for the chapter. And this principle is a corollary to the one we learned last week. Last week we learned that by faith in Jesus you get a new spirit, one that's sinless, one that's perfect. So that as we experience sin in our lives as Christians, we know that that sin is not originating in our spirit. It's originating from some other place. Now we're learning that the source of our sin is our flesh. And then Paul says in verse 14 that the law is spiritual, meaning it has a spiritual source from God, and it describes the perfect nature of the divine. As Jesus said, only God is good. So the law is like a description of God's goodness. In that sense, it's a spiritual thing. To keep the law is to share in the nature of God. But then Paul says, but we, we're not that way, we're fleshly. What he's saying is, our spirit, which is perfect and sinless like God, which you could say then is keeping the law, if you want to put it that way, it's not limited to being spirit like God is. We, being spiritual and physical, which he calls fleshly, it means that we have both this perfect spiritual nature coexisting with a sinful, fallen body. So, those two together, this union of perfect spirit and sinful flesh, it results in ever-present warfare. It's a spiritual schizophrenia. 
You have two opposite personalities, spiritually speaking, working inside you from the moment you believe. You have Christ's spirit and Adam's body. It's like sharing the back seat on a long road trip with your older sibling. It's like Donald Trump taking Hillary Clinton to the prom. It's like half golden retriever, half poodle. These don't work. You only want half. Or neither in some cases. So the consequence of your salvation by faith is a spirit that's reborn. But for a time, it lives in a body that's unchanged. And that leads to spiritual conflict. So what Paul has done is move us from the first part of chapter 7 in understanding that we are no longer bound by a law that has only the power to excite sin, not because it's wrong, but because we are. And then he's moved now into saying, but that thing that's in us that guides us is all spiritual, like God is all spiritual, the law being all spiritual, but we are not all spiritual. We've got this flesh to contend with. And now he starts talking about the consequences of being saved and yet in this fleshly body. Verse 15, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good I want... I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. You see the schizophrenia there? So Paul speaks of himself here, but he's describing the experience of every Christian. First, we see ourselves sinning. I mean, coming to faith, we come through that process, we come out of that process, we go back to regular life, so to speak. You know, you get get done with the altar call, and you start going to church. And you fall into regular Christian life, whatever that looks like for you. And then you notice that you're still doing some things you shouldn't do because people have told you you shouldn't do them or the Bible says you shouldn't do them or the Spirit in you says stop doing those things, right? And you may wonder, why do I still have these desires to do the wrong thing? Paul says in verse 15, we, we don't understand this. We do the things we don't want to do. We don't understand. And you should know that feeling, I think. It usually hits you right after you've done or you've said something that you know you shouldn't have done or shouldn't have said. You said that thought... Why did I do that? I know I'm not supposed to do that. We aren't practicing what we want to do. And we're continuing to do the very things we hate, Paul says. What he's doing, of course, is describing the frustrations that we all know from living with a sinful nature. But what Paul asks us to do here is to think again about this. Take another look at this for a moment, at these experiences that we all share. He says in verse 16, If you're doing something you don't want to do, then you're demonstrating that you agree with God's law. You're confessing what is good, right? My dislike for my own sin is evidence that my spirit shares the mind of Christ. That I know now something I didn't used to know. Previously, I never would have felt that way. And in fact, I couldn't have felt that way before I was born again. You know, before I came to faith in Christ, using foul language was not necessarily a thing I did on a routine basis, maybe, but I did it without too much worry. I did it whenever I felt like it. Today, the world uses it far more often than I did back when I was younger, but I did. I didn't think anything of it. I mean, usually it felt good, or I didn't even notice. And then I come to faith, you know, within a relatively short period of time, as a word like that might escape my mouth, I felt bad about it. I mean, it suddenly was no longer something I liked about myself. Where did that come from? 
Nobody ever sat me down and gave me the ten rules to being Christian. There was no point at which somebody said I should stop. I mean, you can find the Bible telling you that in James, and it's not like you can't see it. My point is, whatever caused me to want to do it had to be something different than who I was before, because before I didn't have that concern. And so as I do the thing I don't want to do, what Paul says is, in your recognition that you don't like it, you're showing evidence that there's something inside you now that knows what the right thing is. That's that sinless spirit affecting your thinking, showing itself in your thinking. And that recognition leads you to an important conclusion. I'm not the one seeking to sin, but it is sin dwelling in me that is driving that behavior. That's not an excuse, by the way. This is not the way you excuse your sin and say, well, I didn't sin, it's that other thing in me that sinned. No. Paul's just talking here in in very technical terms spiritually. He's not giving you license to sin. Paul uses the first person pronoun here when he says, me and I. I notice this, that this dwells in me. The first person pronoun in this passage is referring to your spirit. Specifically, that part of you that is spiritual. That new spirit you get when you're born again. Paul says, that part of you agrees with the law and confesses it is good. So he says, I, my spirit, is not the one doing the sin. And that's what we said last week. It's sinless. It's impossible for your spirit to sin because you were given Christ's sinless spirit when you were born again. You were born again into his image, into his spirit. But then that begs the question, where is that desire to sin coming from then? All that's left of you after you take the spirit out for a moment, all that's left is your body or your flesh. And Paul names that in this little passage as sin. He actually personifies sin. So when he says, it is not I that sin, but sin that dwells in me, that sin is a reference to your physical body. So Paul says in verse 18, that sin dwells in my physical fleshly container, that is my body. Another way to say it is, the container that your spirit inhabits is 100% sinful. Paul says nothing good dwells in it. So it's the source of your desire for doing wrong, and it is opposed to your spirit. So the result is that Paul says, the willing to do good is me, my spirit, but the actual doing of good is fleeting. That's the Christian struggle. The Christian struggle is we live in ways that are contrary to our confession. As Paul neatly summarizes in verse 19, we do not do the good we want and we do the evil instead that we do not want to do. How is that even possible? How are you not in control of yourself? Right? I mean, if you want to eat a hamburger tonight, you'll eat a hamburger. You don't suddenly go into a hamburger restaurant and order, you know, some chicken thing and say, I wanted hamburger. How did this show up? (laughs) Right? I mean, we're in control of every major, minor decision of our life. We know how we got to the decisions we made, or so we think. What Paul's saying, though, is you are actually not in control if you understand who you really are, if you make a more technical definition of that term. You is not the whole of you. Spiritually speaking, you is just the spirit part, the part that's eternal, the part that will never die. And the body side of you is not you, not in any meaningful sense, because it's going to die and be gone at some point. You're never going to see it again. It's a temporary container. It's like a rental car, as I've said. Paul gives you the answer. He says, how is it we're not in control of ourselves at all times and do exactly what we want at all times? He says in verse 20, because there's two sources of power working inside you. You have a spiritual will and you have a physical will. Your spiritual will wants to do what God wants, while the physical will wants to do what the enemy wants. And it can cause you to go against your own wishes if the physical will has the upper hand in any certain situation. 
it gets in the way when you listen to its desires and give in to its requests. So what you're learning is a principle that the spiritual will, that is the true identity of you, has to yield to the physical desires of your flesh in order for sin to take place. You are always yielding at that moment. It may not come across in a conscious way for you. You're not thinking it that way. It's not that mechanical. It happens in an instant. But spiritually, what Paul is saying is you got to that outcome because the spiritual will of you was subjected to the physical will of you in that moment. Which is why we see in the disciplines of the faith, the Bible saying we should pray, we should fast, we should study the scripture, we should be in the counsel of others who can correct us when necessary. We need those tools helping us discipline the flesh so that its voice doesn't override the spiritual voice, the will of the Spirit. Because if the spiritual will was in control at all times, if that were possible, you would literally be sinless. Now, it's not possible, which is why we walk around not being sinless yet. It's also why when you lose your body, you go into heaven sinless. Because you lose the one part of you that's not sinless. Paul sums up a principle here in verse 21. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, me being the one who wants to do good, he says, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Since we can plainly see that we do things we don't want to do, we have there our proof that those evil desires are not of our true self. We don't agree with them. We are mad at ourselves when we sin. They are part of us for now, but they are not us. So evil is something that is present in us, even as we want to do good. In my spirit, he says, in the inner man. He says, I love God. I love what God loves. I want what God wants. But in my physical body, I find there's another source for evil that actively opposes my efforts to follow God and to serve Him. And it's not merely a bad influence on me. It's more significant than that. It's actively working against me. It's a foreign invader. It's a virus. It's something that fights back. Paul says it makes me a prisoner, preventing me from being completely free of sin. With what you've learned in chapter 6, and now what you're learning in chapter 7, you have powerful insight if you want to go to battle. You now know that you have all you need inside you to please God. The Spirit inside you is capable of telling you the right thing to do under every circumstance. You don't need laws written on stone. You don't need ritual. You don't need religion. You need the Word of God because that's the information source that your spirit grows with. But you have the mind of Christ. You have the Spirit of God. You have the will of God present in you. But you also have an enemy living in you, an enemy that always wants to do the opposite. And that force is never at rest It's always at war with your spirit. It'll tempt you into lusts of one kind or another. It wants you to fail in your service to God. And you are a prisoner, of sorts, of this enemy because he lives in your physical body. And obviously you can't exist here on earth without a physical body. So you're a prisoner to it in that sense. It's like being locked in a jail cell with it. You can't get out right now. Not yet. But you're not without a defense in this battle. The stronger your spiritual will grows, the more control you can exert over your physical will. And Paul will talk more about that in the next chapter. Meanwhile, to finish, he goes to the ultimate question, the one that you would naturally ask at this point, which is, how do I get rid of this stupid evil body? Verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. We are, as Paul says, wretched in this present state. 
we're all like a walking Greek tragedy, right? I mean, we've, we've been equipped to know God. We know what He wants. We have a desire to please Him, and yet we're shackled to a body that is dedicated to opposing Him. It's like a recipe for frustration. But in reality, it's a temporary situation. Paul says we need someone to set us free from this body of death. In other words, this body that wants to lead us into sin. And he follows that by saying, thanks be to God, which is to say, that's exactly what's going to happen through Jesus Christ. And he'll talk a little more about that later. But Jesus gave us a new spirit. He's also going to give us a new body. To wrap this up, this idea that we have to be freed from our body, that is at the heart of the whole New Testament. When you hear of the hope of Christianity, the hope we have in Christ, that's not some general phrase that means being hopeful. Hope means something very specific in the New Testament. The hope of our faith is our hope in resurrection. All believers from all time look forward to the coming moment you receive a new body. That's always been what hope means in the Bible. The hope that death is not the end of our body, that we'll have a new one. The Bible teaches that each distinct group of saints throughout history receive their new bodies at the same moment together. So all church saints receive their new bodies in a single moment of resurrection. We call it the rapture. All Old Testament saints and tribulation saints receive their bodies all in the same moment at Christ's second coming. So the receiving of new bodies is not trickled out over history as people die. They are mass moments in which God presents a group of saints from some period of history with their new bodies in a mass moment. That's the way God has planned it. We hope for that moment. Our resurrection is the moment of our glorification. But even before that moment, we will be freed from the scourge of this body. Even before you receive the new body, you will be freed from the scourge of your current body. Because at your death, your spirit leaves your body behind. You enter into the presence of the Lord, Paul says in Second Corinthians. So the only thing standing between you and heaven is the sinful body you occupy, which cannot go into heaven. Once the body's gone, your spirit is free to enter. Which, by the way, is further proof that your spirit is sinless. Because there's nothing more that has to be done to bring you into heaven but to drop the sinful body that you have. So Paul summarizes that point in verse 25. He says, with my mind, or we could say with our spirit, we serve the law of God through our life lived in Christ. But through our flesh, I'm serving the principle of sin that is in opposition to God. So when you sin, you're watching your flesh win the day. When you live in a holy and pleasing way, you're watching your spirit maintain control. Watch for which one is winning more often. And you'll have a measure of how sanctified you are in your walk with Christ. So the life goal of every Christian should be to build up the spiritual strength of our spirit and discipline the flesh. I compare it to two volume knobs on a radio. Turn one up, turn the other one down through disciplines of one kind or another. That brings glory to Christ. You show love to other people. You serve Him faithfully as an ambassador. That should be the mission of every Christian life. That's unfortunately been lost in a lot of church life these days, but that's actually why you go to church. That's why we have church. That's why we are in a body of believers. It's so that collectively we're getting better at turning one of those volume knobs up and the other one down so that we can serve Christ. All right, let's go to prayer. Thank you, Father, for giving us that new and perfect spirit. Thank you, Father, for freeing us from the obligations of law which only serve to inflame us against you. Discipline our flesh, Father, and strengthen our spirit and encourage us along that path and let us serve you in a greater and better way than we have in the past. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.